So thank you, Colin. That was really insightful. And I think um, in terms of my experience in continental Europe, I share pretty much exactly the same views and I've seen the same trends coming through. So Sam is, has been live in South Africa now since July 2018, two and a half years after Solvency 2 went live in Europe. As it is with the introduction of any new regulatory regime, the first years of reporting and disclosure under Solvency II entailed a big learning curve for all stakeholders, but specifically for insurance companies and shareholders. It is the insights gained during this time that I would like to share with you today in an attempt to prepare you for what is likely to materialize in the South African market over the upcoming years. And I will do this through a bit of a game analogy. So let us start. Capital management for shareholder value. What does SAM mean for shareholders? Now, the objectives of SAM, as with most regulatory regimes, are primarily to protect policyholders and beneficiaries by ensuring overall financial soundness. Whereas the other objectives include that regulatory capital requirements reflect the risks of the insurance company, as well as to incentivize adopting more sophisticated risk management techniques. Now, all of these objectives are fully in line with the objectives of Solvency II, from which SAM was derived, but there is one objective which SAM does not mention, which Solvency II does, and that is the harmonization of regulatory capital requirements across Europe. Now, of course, one might say, well, this is obviously not relevant to South Africa. However, I would argue that through the application of SAM, if it's done appropriately, it will lead to a higher level of harmonization of regulatory capital requirements, more transparency, and due to that, a higher level of comparability between insurance companies across the market. And this is a game changer, which brings me back to my game analogy. So I'm going to try to explain to you the concept of capital management for shareholder value by comparing the old to the new, and by contrasting the old rule compared to the new rule. So, first point, and Colin has already alluded to this, solvency ratios and dividends. Now, the old rule is solvency ratios are disclosed on a four-year information basis. In Europe, before solvency ratios were driven by market changes, they were stable and relatively predictable. So they hardly ever introduced a binding constraint on dividend payments, and the market therefore paid little attention to them. Now, in South Africa, it has been similar. The capital ratios have been high, and in addition to that, due to the use of discretionary margins, we've been able to keep them relatively stable. They hardly ever introduced a binding constraint. And so the market normally doesn't look a lot at, inf at information which they cannot use to compare across companies, nor does it really impact dividend payments. So, the new rule is solvency ratios and their sensitivities are key disclosures. And I think Colin already alluded to this as well, that at some point the level of the solvency ratio did not matter as much as the resilience thereof. So there are two reasons for this. The first one is under a market consistent framework, solvency ratios tend to move fast and materially. And they might start imposing a constraint on dividend payments. Of course, shareholders would like to get their dividends, so this just became a lot more interesting to them. And the second thing is, this volatile and unpredictable capital now represents some real money and something which can limit dividend payments. 
And so shareholders became a lot more interested, not only in level, but the resilience and, this, and the sensitivity of solvency ratios. So the next concept, less is more. Now, in the old world, the concept or the idea was more capital is more for the same profits, of course. Um, and basically, if you're, before um, regimes like Solvency II and SAM were introduced, more capital implied more financial strength, more resilience to adverse outcomes, and it enabled companies to release profits stable, in a stable way over time. Also, the use of discretionary margins basically led to multiple layers of buffers. And now that capital is risk-based, and as Carlton mentioned, there are many ways to optimize or reduce your capital requirements through implementing better risk management um, approaches, it actually, I believe this concept does not hold anymore. So the new rule is less capital is more for the same profits. And there's a very basic question you need to ask yourself with regard to this. If you can generate the same returns on less capital, or you can generate more returns on the same capital, why should investors settle for less? And if you cannot generate adequate return on the capital you're holding in excess of what you require, don't you think investors would rather take that capital back and invest it elsewhere? The consensus in Europe is in. Capital efficiency is a key requirement of shareholders. And for this reason, over the last couple of years, we've seen a real wave of share buybacks coming through in Europe, simply because capital ratios have been excessive, because insurers have actively managed, obviously since, uh, like Colin said, through many ways, managed their solvency ratios, reduced the sensitivities, so they don't need that capital anymore. And due to the market conditions in Europe, there are not very feasible investment opportunities, and so they just give the capital back. Which brings me to the concept, healthy parents, lean but resilient children. And this is an, a concept which focuses on trying to make capital more efficient. So the question is, where should buffers be held and in which magnitude? Now, under the car regime, and I think Solvency II similarly, target capital ratios were determined using very simple approaches. Normally, a simple multiple of the capital requirements. And these were normally determined by thinking about business considerations. For example, high growth or high risk markets would be um, allocated higher multiples. Sometimes it depended on the appetite of the local regulator. Or it was used uh, due to certain practical considerations. For example, um, difficulties to inject or extract capital. But more often than not, these ratios were actually determined, or the multiples were determined, simply through peer benchmarking, through historic sentiment, or due to uncertainty. This meant that in some entities, there might be more capital buffers than is actually required, but in others, depending on the risk profile, there might not actually be enough capital buffers. Which brings me to the new rule. Target capital ratios are linked to the resilience of regulatory capital. So we've talked about how important it is to manage the sensitivity of your solvency ratio and how it can include a binding constraint on your dividend payments. And basically, 
the question is now, how can we actually ensure that our solvency ratios are resilient enough, but we can still capitalize entities at a lean level? And to explain this concept, I'm going to take you through an example. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to assess the vulnerability or resilience of the regulatory capital position by considering the impact of stresses and scenarios on the capital position and buffering against these on an adequate level in order to ensure that should such an event occur, your business operations are not materially impacted. So there are a couple of components in this concept, which I will explain now. Let us consider two entities. One has a local capital requirement leading to 150% solvency ratio, whereas the other one has to have 140. And then we'll have some additional capital buffers on top of that. Now, like I mentioned, we want to look at the resilience. So we want to see how the solvency position moves under certain stresses and scenarios. And in this case, let's say two group-defined stresses and one entity-specific scenario. Entity one is vulnerable to the second group-defined stress. And the solvency ratio drops 90 percentage points in this case. Whereas entity two is actually quite resilient. Only a 30 percentage point drop in the group-defined stress one. So now we know how resilient or vulnerable the entities are. And this brings us to the next question. What is the minimum level of solvency ratio that we believe our entities can operate out with, at without suffering material business consequences? And this is what we call the post-stress minimum solvency ratio. So in this case, it's 120%. And to ensure that entity one, for example, is capitalized at a level that it can withstand the stresses we're buffering against, we have to capitalize them at 210%, 120 plus 90. Whereas entity two, given its resilience to the scenarios we want to capitalize against, actually only needs 150% solvency ratio. Now this means entity one needs a bit of a capital injection, whereas entity two can actually upstream capital until it reaches the 150% threshold. It's of course very important to think about the scenarios you're using to drive these targets, right? Because those are the ones you're really buffering against. And similarly, for the minimum post-stress level, you need to make sure that this is a level where your business operations are not actually impacted. So the point where you think, if we go below this, we might have difficulty selling business or the regulator might intervene. So this concept can be applied on group or at entity level, obviously with different objectives depending on, on which level you're at. But the good thing about it is we are allocating explicit risk-based buffers and the second thing is, it's very clear what is driving the target um, capitalization. So for entity one, for example, you can go back and see, okay, group defines stress. If it's an equity stress, they have to go look at equity risk and make sure they manage that better or dispose of their position or put in a hedge, something like that. It just makes it very transparent and understandable for management in terms of how they can influence the magnitude of capital buffers that they need. So what will the focus be on? Now, shareholders want predictable, sustainable dividend distribution. And in order to gain confidence that they will in fact get that, they want transparency about the resilience of your solvency position. Capital generation. This is something which we've seen in Europe big focus on also in terms of disclosures to, to market analysts. Capital generation means an increase in surplus capital, higher quality of earnings, lower SCR requirements in order to free up more capital in the future. Capital efficiency. 
If you're in a group and you have entities, they expect the groups to actually manage it like a portfolio and try to optimize the return on the capital that they have invested. And capital efficient growth, very important. Not growth at all costs, but rather only growth that generates adequate return. So, to prove to you my concept, I have uh, looked at the market in South Africa, and I've done a similar analysis in Europe, and the results are the same. So, we're talking about shareholder value. Now, I've taken market-to-book value of common equity as an indicator of how much value we've generated for our shareholders. So, that's on the y-axis, versus return on equity. And I've determined the correlation between the two for these listed companies in South Africa. Now, you can see the correlation is 91%, pretty strong. This means that the, the companies who are delivering high return on equity are the ones who are um, generating good shareholder value through high market-to-book value. And you can see that the evidence is, is quite clear, right? Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, what about return on EV? Well, at the same point in time, return on EV had a 74% correlation, so it's also quite significant. But return on equity is definitely clearly something which, which is linked to your market value. And I think it's very important to understand how it all fits together. Return on equity is what we ultimately need to deliver to shareholders. It is what they use to compare across the market. And we might say, well, as insurance companies, return on equity doesn't really capture the value of our insurance business, nor does it capture the variability in insurance business. True. However, dividends are based on accounting metrics, and investors use return on equity to uh, compare across sectors. So it's definitely something to think about. But it's not the only thing to think about. So return on equity only generates value if it is something which is above cost of capital. And in addition to that, growth. If you can grow while generating returns above the cost of capital, you can leverage up your market to book value even more. So, how will the bull curve, how is our business changing? And I'm going to explain to you, similar to what Colin has said, what we've seen concretely happening in Europe. Asset allocation, so equities. There was a big shift away from equities in the European market, even a shift away from property. And investments in high-rated fixed-income securities, as well as, like Colin alluded as well, infrastructure investments and alternative assets. In terms of product structures, so we saw a move away from long-term unmatched interest rate guaranteed products towards unit-linked products and products which included market value adjustments. In terms of pricing, there was a big focus on ensuring that your return on capital is adequate when you price your product. Now for life business, this means that you have to actually continuously reassess the capital requirement for your business since it moves with the market and make sure that you're pricing it at a level that you're generating adequate return. For non-life business, it meant de deriving the break-even combined ratio that you need in order to compensate for the capital required over the duration of that business. Use of economic capital. So what we saw was basically running full parallel economic capital models, kind of dying down a bit. And really a focus on only looking at what the economic capital requirement is in the books of business and the risk types where 
you know there's a material difference between the two. And the idea was really to focus on action, right? So if you see your economic capital for a certain part of your business is higher than the regulatory capital you're holding, you have two options. Either you buffer against it in terms of holding capital, or if it's not in your risk appetite, you'll transfer that risk out. On the other side, if the economic capital is less than what your regulatory capital requires, you will try to find ways to actually bring that capital down. Again, either reinsuring it out or moving it to Bermuda, for example. So um, what we saw in terms of capital optimization of enforced books was also a transfer of certain risk types, especially the ones that correlate highly with market risk. So for example, longevity and transferring books of business to jurisdictions where, economic, where the economics of that business is better captured in the capital requirements. So for example, credit spread sensitive business was transferred to Bermuda because even though the level of the capital requirement for credit spread business is not lower there, the volatility is lower. And therefore, if you're determining your target ratio based on the sensitivity of your business, you actually can reduce the target capital ratio and, and ultimately hold less capital for that business. So what could go wrong? Very interestingly, many of the issues experienced related to investor story and public disclosure. Now, solvency ratios move with market movements, and sometimes they move materially, which means between reporting periods, you might have to explain things which are quite tricky to the market, or the outcome might be something that indicates inadequate risk management procedures, and you might actually not want to explain to the market that you left something unhedged or unmatched, and now you're paying the price for that. Second thing, not being able to anticipate the outcome. So now that solvency ratios are very volatile, they are not so predictable. And you might come in at the end of the quarter and realize, now the verdict's in, it's closing, you're just seeing where you're, where you're standing, and realize that it's not something you want to actually disclose or something you feel comfortable with. Maybe it's outside of your target range. So third thing, disclosures not being indicative of the final position. Now, once you disclose your solvency, to or your solvency sensitivities to the market, analysts will try to determine what is your solvency position going to be at the end of the reporting period based on the sensitivities you disclosed and the market movements observed. If these don't match up, they will ask you to explain and raise questions about the credibility of your disclosures. Fourth thing, not being able to disclose the information required. So once you start becoming more capital efficient and changing your business model and writing new business, which is more capital efficient or more capital light than what you've had in the past, the market will want to know, well, what is the real impact of this on your solvency capital? And sometimes it's not so easy to determine the marginal impact of new business SCR on, compared to your in-force or the marginal impact of a certain line of business in terms of its SCR, in terms of your overall portfolio ACR. And the last point relates to, of course, embedding yet another KPI into business decisions, especially if these are not robust and they don't um, indicate long-term steering impulses, but rather move with the market. So how do you win the game? Now, I think this is the part where it becomes really interesting. Like Con also said, business strategies completely shifted after Solvency 2 came into effect. And this is actually a very exciting time. But the first thing is you need to align your company targets to something which correlates strongly with shareholder value. So 
something which moves in the same way, right? Something where you can see if it goes up, your market value of your share price goes up. The second point is you need to establish and communicate a clear and action-driven capital management policy or capital management approach, which has target ranges, management action barriers, and link this back to your dividend policy in order to demonstrate to the market your commitment to ensuring predictable and sustainable dividends. Third thing, capital efficiency. You need to try to centralize as much capital as possible in order for you to be able to steer your business as a portfolio by allocating more capital, and with allocating I mean sending money there, giving more capital to the businesses that generate more return on capital and giving less to the ones that are not generating capital above the return you would like. And the fourth one is, it's quite important that when you determine how much buffers you put into entities, this approach actually meets the purpose. If it's not risk-driven, you're not incentivizing active capital management. And if it is risk-driven, but it's not transparent, what can actually be done in order to reduce that, you're also not really helping management to know what they can really do or influence it. And the last one is, so I talked about ROE being a good target because it correlates strongly to shareholder value. The thing with ROE is it's not very granular. It doesn't take into account long-term capital requirements or the potential variability in the business. So even if ROE is what we ultimately have to deliver, it is not a very good business steering KPI to make decisions. So you need something which is more appropriate takes into account the risk, risk capital requirements, but also the full risk exposure of the business, but which ultimately drives return on equity. So to conclude, risk management has gone from being a compliance function to being crisis managers in the time of financial distress. But the end game for risk management is to drive shareholder value. And how can we do this? We need to be senior partner in the business. Make sure that the risk, capital, and business strategies are aligned. Very important. Seems trivial, not so easy. Second point, we need to have technical insight, but we also need to have a business understanding. So we cannot only understand what drives the model, we also need to understand what drives business performance. We need to focus our energy on supporting long-term value creation in a sustainable way. So if we can provide the tools to our business to actually figure out what they need to do in order to achieve that, we're on the right, on the right uh, track. Fourth, we need to listen, but also critically challenge when it's necessary. And to listen, I mean, you need to understand what is the objectives of the business. And if you put up your red flag, you need to be able to say, give them reasonable actions they can take in order for you to put your red flag down again and communicate that very clearly. So this requires a good balance between IQ and EQ. Now, for us as actuaries, all of this might be a bit of a challenge, but I believe it also represents a huge opportunity for us to get closer to the business and to contribute to value generation through risk management. And for this reason, I believe it's a very interesting and exciting chapter for risk management in the South African insurance industry. Thank you. Thanks, Adelia. I think we all want to know how to win at the game, so appreciate your <laughs> insights. We do have one or two minutes for questions, so if anyone does have a question, we do have two mics going around as well um, in the front here. 
Thank you. Uh, I'm Johan from Old Neutral. Uh, so I have a question for uh, each of the two speakers. Uh, for Colin, uh, so it seemed like uh, a lot of the impact from Solvency 2 is essentially a regulatory arbitrage exercise uh, from what I got from you, so moving, uh, moving risk onto Bermuda where I assume the capital requirements are different. Is that correct? Uh, and if that's so, uh, do you think this is just really um, basically just moving the risk out of other jurisdictions and so not really changing much in that sense. Um, and then for uh, Idelia, uh, so in your last, uh, I think the second to last slide, you mentioned that you want to link um, uh, performance to metrics other than ROE that you believe drive, uh, drive value. Uh, my question is, what do you think those metrics are? Uh, so for instance, uh, for life insurance, you would think that metric would be, for instance, VNB, uh, but embedded value is dying, uh, and it's not really clear that ROE and VNB are linked. So what would you think we should use? Okay, are these still on? Yes. Um, okay, so is, is it just a regulatory capital arbitrage? If the PA is here, of course not. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I think, I think you know, the, the point of what I was saying is that's what started it. So this SCR risk margin type uh, debate and what people wanted to do was regulatory capital driven. And actually, once you got through it, you saw that it is actually a risk-based system. So if you wanted to get rid of that risk, you had to prove that you were doing risk transfer. You had to actually find somebody who was taking that risk away from you. Now, they might be taking it at a cheaper rate, um, but it comes, it, it comes back, it had to be risk management in the first place. So I think, yes, it started out being regulatory arbitrage as the concept, but actually to do this properly, you have to do risk management. You have to decide what you want to keep and what you want to give away, and then which jurisdiction it ends up within your own organization or which counterparty it ends up becomes the sort of optimization part of it, the, 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 the devil in the detail, not the macro picture. Okay, can you hear me? So, I would say, like I said, return on equity not granular enough, what we need to deliver, but it's still what we need to deliver. So, in the numerator, we basically have the profit, right? And so you need a good measure of profit, which like you say, VNB, not always exactly the same thing. And I mean, in this case, we're talking about IFRS profits. So, actually an idea of what your IFRS profits would be real-world profits would be the best, I would say, measure for the, for the numerator. In terms of the denominator, we are looking about at equity, right? And also, if you want to look at long-term sustainable ROE generation, you need to look at something forward-looking, which need, means I would propose to use in the denominator the risk capital you require in every period forward-looking for that business. This is something which then should align on average to what you're going to um, generate in terms of return on equity in the future. Uh, is that essentially a wrap-up? Yes, it's a return, forward-looking return on risk capital, I would say. Thank you. Sure. Hi. Um, the new risk margin and SCR calculations produce some different results to whatever the old stuff was. Would you say, and maybe for the risk, higher risk margins on annuities in particular, would you say it's better quantifying the risk has always been there, or is it a sort of a glitch in the, in the limitations of the new regime? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think uh, the risk margin on a new business in the UK is, is just is, is mental. It's just if you, if you 
if it is supposed to be the additional amount you would pay somebody to take your liability to the risk, it's way in advance of that. Um, and, and any counterparty will tell you that. They'll take it from, you know, give them the risk margin, they'll be very happy. Um, so I think it's a glitch and it's, you know, it's part of the negotiation process of Solvency II and, and all those sort of things. Um, it's only the UK and Spain who use the risk margin. Um, so of course the talk now is with Brexit, uh, assume all the Solvency II legislation and start making changes that are sensible for the UK. And that's the first one in the firing line. Um, and just to add a bit more context to that from an Institute of Actuaries point of view, um, we actually started research to say, uh, what, what would a risk margin actually be? How, how would you specify a risk margin to do the job it's supposed to do? Um, that's just started, so I can't comment on the comments, uh, on, on the results going to be, but I'm pretty sure for the newties it's going to be not as onerous as it is. Hi, great. Uh, I suspect this question might be more for Idelia. Um, so, so the regulator has been asking very pointed questions to insurers about, you know, what is your target solvency ratio and how did you get there? And they've, they've kind of made that comment quite clear in a lot of their feedback around disclosures and the also process. Um, I would perhaps suggest that a lot of the questions you were proposing during your presentation are answered directly by the also process. So you know, under these plausible scenarios specific to my insurer and the group, what does my capital look like? What do the capital levels look like? How do they change? What, is your, what are your thoughts around how the also process fits into everything you discussed so far? I definitely agree that it, um, it fits. There's a piece of the puzzle fitting together there. I think it depends a little bit on, um, on which level you're, you're, depend you're determining your target capitalization at. So what's the objectives? For example, if you're looking at an entity level, um, you might not want to buffer against a one in 200 year event, right? So it depends a little bit the kind of scenarios you're looking at in your ORSA. If you're considering very extreme scenarios, you might buffer a bit too high if you also are in a group where you might get capital support. But if you're on a group level, you might, might say, well, I want to buffer against quite extreme scenarios. So my answer would be, I definitely think there's a link and it should be linked to that. Um, but you just have to consider um, how extreme are the scenarios you're using and are they adequate for the purpose you're actually buffering against?